there is a series of lists. There is a praise list, prayer list, a ponder and practice list. I want to give consideration today and the succeeding Sundays to these lists, today's praise list. He says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. A few months ago, a national business magazine did a feature on some of the leading CEOs of the largest companies in America to see if they could determine some keys to success. And so they interviewed and um, evaluated these administrators who have succeeded in becoming successes as administrators and entrepreneurs. And they found that the most successful men were the best organized. They had the best organization. They, had, uh, they learned to manage their time. They were able to establish priorities and, and carry out those priorities. They just were organized. And so they began to inquire as to see if they could find a common denominator that enabled them to be so organized. And they found that in almost every case, these CEOs who had this great ability to uh, manage their time and set priorities and organize, they all were keepers of lists. They had these elaborate lists they kept. Uh, Charlie McKay, who has written several books, one of those books I've read is called How to Swim with the Sharks and Not Get Eaten Alive. McKay is this guy who was really just a uh, uh, kind of a small businessman who parlayed this envelope business into a megabucks business and has become a world entrepreneur. He, he was the guy that brought the Metrodome to Minneapolis. And in this book, he, he tells about the lists he keeps. And he has this elaborate list-keeping system. He knows every birthday of every client, who's their favorite baseball team, and all that. What is good in the secular world must be good in the Christian life. Because in the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians, there is a series of lists. And the Apostle Paul must have made this discovery that the way to be successful in the Christian life is to keep some lists. And he begins with the beginning place, a praise list. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. And you'll say, well, Paul, you just keep on repeating yourself. That's right. For in the third chapter we find that same admonition, rejoice in the Lord. And he comes to the fourth chapter and he says it again. And then he turns around and says it again. It's the key word to this marvelous little epistle that just rings with joy. Rejoice in the Lord. And because he repeats this again and again, it tells me that this is something that is both necessary and difficult. Now these people weren't really in the mood to praise the Lord. They were people who were being persecuted. They, 
They knew what it meant to be abused by circumstances and people. And yet the Apostle Paul, in determining how to cope in life and how to be successful as a Christian in this secular world, obviously understood that rejoicing and praising the Lord and getting a prayer list was essential, but it was both difficult and necessary. I'm going to have to confess to you this morning that I've had a little bit of a uh, problem getting this sermon together because actually I, I, have a, I, I have a little bit of anxiety about talking about praising the Lord anyway, you know, and giving thanks and all things because so much is said about that. We've kind of assumed a kind of a cavalier attitude toward it as though what we mean when we say praise the Lord anyway and give thanks in all things, that what we're saying there is that you've got to be able just to, you know, ignore the facts of life. As though praising the Lord and giving thanks was really, you know, uh, failing to take in consideration how serious life is. And I think sometimes that these people who we imagine who are just people who just praise the Lord and everything or these folks that just kind of go around with their head in a cloud, ignoring the facts of life. Well, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about praising the Lord anyway. I don't think he's saying if you fall down and break your leg, you know, just ignore that pain, praise the Lord. I don't think he's saying that if you have an automobile accident, you're just supposed to, you know, I'm thankful I had an accident, an automobile accident. I don't think he's saying that at all. Because if there is anyone who really has a serious perspective on life, it's this man. I have to keep reminding myself that this letter, this epistle that rings with joy, the only New Testament book that doesn't have the word sin in it, that just sings and throbs with happiness, was written from prison. And this man writing this letter, in commanding them to rejoice, here's the clank of chains because he's chained to the praetorian guard and the threat of death is over his head like a cloud. But in the determining of how to live a successful Christian life, he has come to understand the fine art of praising the Lord in all things. Three things about it. First of all, it is a command that's unavoidable. This command, rejoice in the Lord, is an imperative verb. It means that it's not optional. It's not pick or choose. It's not like a cafeteria line when a person can say, well, I think I'll praise the Lord today. I'll choose to do that. It's an imperative command and it is not, and it is not optional. You know, I'm constantly amazed at how often the Bible commands me to do something I prefer to do if I feel like it. Is that true in your case? The Bible is always commanding me to do something I prefer to do if I feel like it. For most of us are ruled by our feelings. If I feel like giving thanks, I'll give thanks. If I feel happy, I'll rejoice. If I feel loving, I will act lovingly. And we live under a dictatorship, an emotional dictatorship. But really, the Bible always wants us to understand 
that there are some things we must do not if we feel like it, but we do it as a choice of the will. So Jesus said, love one another. But there are some people, let me, let me tell you, I wish I could love. I mean, I can't help it because I can't love them. And Jesus said, forgive as I've forgiven you. And you say, well, that's easy for you to say, but there are some people who've done so many unkind things to me, I, I just never can forgive them. You know, what, you know what Paul is telling us? He's telling us that we are to live the Christian life not in the realm of the emotion, but in the realm of the will. For emotions are so fickle and unpredictable. I mean, I can get up in the morning, I'm feeling great. Man, I've got life by the throat. By 9 o'clock somebody says something unkind to me and everything goes out the window. Let me tell you something. God does not rest the responsibility of the Christian life on something as fickle and unpredictable as your emotions. He means for you to live the Christian life not in the realm of the emotion, but in the realm of the will, a choice. You say, well, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about positive thinking. Well, I'm really not. Now, I don't have anything against power of positive thinking. I'd rather be around somebody who thinks positively than thinks negatively. And I think your faith, if you have faith in God, will cause you to think positively. What I'm trying to say is I don't believe that you can always equate your Christian faith with positive thinking. I'm not talking about positive thinking here. Because I don't really believe it is possible for you to think your way into joy. So what am I talking about? You say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, the key phrase here is the phrase, did you see it? In the Lord. That's it. The key to rejoicing in all things is found in your vital relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, if you get your joy out of your work, you'll not be happy long. And if you get your kicks out of life in making money, you're not going to be happy too long. I've got to find me something that is consistent and constant and never changing, and I have found that something in Jesus Christ. And in my relationship with Jesus Christ, I have found something that never changes, that's predictable and constant and consistent, and I must find my joy there. So it's a joy in spite of. It's a joy in spite of fetters. Because Paul and Silas were in Philippi when they were beaten within an inch of their lives and they rejoiced at midnight. It's a joy in spite of, of floggings and imprisonment. It's a joy in spite of friendlessness. For while they were in prison, while he was in prison, most of his friends forsook him. It's a joy because of, not because of prosperity or popularity or pleasure. It's a joy because I have a vital relationship with Christ. Now, I'm going to tiptoe through the tulips here just a minute and kind of say something I believe deeply. I don't believe that what Paul is talking about is that when your child gets run over by a car, you're just praise the Lord anyway. I don't think what he's talking about is if you come back from a 
bad lab report and you find out you, you have cancer that you're supposed to go around saying, boy, I just thank God for my cancer. I think what he's saying is this, is that I can look on life and I can say, I don't understand this and I don't like it. And I pray and I don't get answers that I pray for and I don't understand why we should pray if we don't get the answer. And I don't like what's happening to me, Lord, but I love you. And I know you and I understand you and I believe in you and I believe you are in control so in this thing I give thanks. It's a command. It's unavoidable. Secondly, it is something that is communicated unusually. Now how do you communicate your joy in the Lord? Now watch this carefully. How do you communicate that? Do you communicate it by pasting some fake smile on your face and go around with you know, pearly whites and you know, just praising the Lord? It, do you communicate it by just always shouting hallelujah, you know, I'm so happy? That's not how you communicate your joy in the Lord. The next verse after the command is this, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The NIV translates that, let your gentle spirit be evident to everybody. And this gentle spirit is, a, is the result of one's deliberate um, self-control. It's not that he's just by nature, you know, easygoing. I know some people that just, you know, innately, by nature, just laid back and they just easy going. They just kind of take things, you know, as they come. He's talking about a gentleness of spirit which is the result of self-restraint. And he's talking about when the pressures of life and the pressures of people get so bad, you respond to that or react to that as the result of self-restraint with a gentle spirit. Now I want to put all this together. Now watch this. The way you communicate your joy in the Lord as a successful Christian is, the, is reacting to life and the things of life with a gentle spirit that everybody recognizes. Now, I believe you need to say something, try to say something profound in every sermon. I'm going to try to say something profound right now. I want you to get this. I believe that the real test of the Christian life is not how you act, but how you react. Now, I, you, you give me a list of rules, and I can act pretty, I can follow them, I think. You leave me alone, and you put me in a pretty, you know, nice environment, I think I can keep the rules. I think I can act like a Christian is supposed to act. But that's not the real test of the Christian life, young people. The real test of the Christian life is not how you act, but how you react. And that was the impressive thing about Jesus. Let me tell you something. The impressive thing to the apostles about Jesus was not how He acted. They saw the Pharisees living out these rules. The impressive thing about Jesus to the, to the apostles was how he reacted. And Peter was a guy who reacted. You know, he, was, he was exhibit A of how you, you know, a person that reacts spontaneously. You know? He was the guy that coined the phrase, don't just stand there and say something. He was always doing, you know, reacting. 
And if you turn to his epistles, the epistles of Peter, the thing that, the, the thing that amazed Peter was that Jesus reacted with a spirit of gentleness. And so he says, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he was cursed, he cursed not. When he was abused, he didn't retaliate. The thing that astounded Peter was that Jesus always reacted with a spirit of gentleness. John Killinger was playing golf one day with his friend. His friend is this scratch golfer. He had about a three handicap. John Killiger was a dover, just like some of us. And so while they were playing, the, the guy's concentration was so, Killinger was so bad that it messed up the friend's game and they spent half the time out in the rough, you know, digging around out there. And while they were out there messing around out there in the rough looking for, for one of the balls they'd knocked out there, the guy said to Killinger, he said, you know, how, what a, you know how, what a great golfer is? A great golfer is a, is a golfer who can recover from a bad lie. You watch that on television. A great golfer is one of these guys that can hit it off way off out of bounds, some off on that rough out there, and the shot he makes is just you know, right up to the pin. He said, a great golfer is a golfer who recovers from a bad lie. He said, let's suppose that a great golfer knocks the ball over here in this rough. He said, he doesn't throw his clubs down and stomp off and give up. I'll tell you what he does. Watch this. He hunkers down and he concentrates and he blasts that ball right up next to the pin. Graduates, Killinger said, when I left that golf game that day, I, I had a lesson, not in golf, but in life that it's not what happens to you in life, but how you react to it. It's not, life's successful living is not always having a good life and making great shots. Successful living is when you are in a bad lie and life deals you a terrible blow, you just hunker down and you concentrate and you blast right up next to the pen. The Apostle Paul was exhibit A of this. When they slammed a door in his face, he, he, he looked for a window. And he had this God-given desire to preach the gospel to the whole world. He wound up in prison. And within these four walls of prison, terrible lie, he just hunkers down and he concentrates and he makes out this prayer list and he drives life right up next to the pen and he rejoices. And I've discovered something, I think, as I've gotten to be an old codger, is that as your children get older, what they notice in you is not how you act, but how you react. You ever know, have you, you ever thought of that? I think my kids know how I should act. And I, 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 I try to act, you know, best I can. I think that what our kids notice about us is not our actions but our reactions. And they look at it. You watch a little child, and he, he, something will happen. He'll look right up in his mother's face to see her reaction to that. And so the Apostle Paul says, this is the, this is the consideration, that the way you express your joy in the Lord is that you have this gentle spirit that reacts in gentleness. Finally, it is, it is something that is 
that is, it is a confidence that is undeniable. A confidence that is undeniable. He said, you notice, watch, he said, the Lord is near. Now, I don't think that, that what Paul is talking about here is the second coming of Christ. I think he was talking about the nearness of the presence of God, the nearness of the Lord. Paul, how, how do you do that? You've been denied your freedom. You've been betrayed by your friends. You've been persecuted. The threat of death is on you. How do you keep your sanity? How do you survive? Well, some of my friends said they went to see you, and as they walked up to your cell, they heard you singing. How'd you do that? And the Apostle Paul answers, I know something. I've always known it. Jesus is near. The Lord is at hand. It does make a tremendous difference, doesn't it? The presence of a friend. And the greatest comfort that man can ever know in life is the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I read somewhere not long ago that the most disastrous, destructive thing in the world is loneliness. This is a nation of lonely people. That's why singles bars and encounter groups and 900 hotlines and, and uh, all those things, computerized dating sprung up because we're lonely people. One psychologist said with tongue in cheek, 99 out of a, of a hundred people are lonely and the other is a liar. You know, maybe a, more, a little more scientific way, psychology today interviewed hundreds of people and came to this conclusion. Watch this. 27 people, 27% of the people they interviewed said they had known loneliness the week before. 26% of all unmarried women, 23% of all unmarried men surveyed said they had experienced intense loneliness in their lifetime. And three-fourths of all the widows over 50 interviewed said that loneliness was a problem over which they had never recovered. Loneliness is an abyss from which we withdraw. It makes a lot of difference, does the presence of a significant friend. I read about a man who had a personal revival in his own life and he wanted to minister somehow and so he learned about a nursing home in town that had, that had a program that that invited people to come from the community and just visit with some of these people in the nursing home. And so he decided that'd be a good way to minister. He could do that. And so he went to this nursing home and volunteered. And the director of the nursing home said, we have a, we have a lady back here that never has a, never has a visitor. She's, she seldom ever talks. She's withdrawn into deep depression, seldom ever communicates. Would you take her and just visit with her? So he did. The first few visits he said she would never say a word. She'd just stare out the window. He'd just kind of sit with her and just be there with her and he'd say a word or two every now and then. 
But after a long period of time, he just constantly going and gently visiting with her, she began to talk a little bit. She began to blossom. She began to come out of her shell. And one day when he went to visit her, he said, well, they, he, he sat down on her bed and they talked a while and she said, you know, I have never been kissed by a man in my life. I've never been kissed by a man. She said, before I die, some of you probably have the same wish, before I die, I'd like to be kissed by a man. And she looked at him and she said, guess what? I've chosen you <laughs> to be the man. And he said, I put my arms around her. He said, I, I held her and I put a kiss right on her cheek. And he said, I, I, I left. And the sun was beaming in her room. And she blossomed like a rose. The next day, she died. It does make a difference, the presence of a significant other. Isn't it amazing what you remember from your childhood? There are so many things I've forgotten from my childhood, but I remember an event that happened to me as a boy. I got up one morning and I was getting ready to go walk to catch, the, I had to walk about a mile to catch the bus. I lived in one of those houses that was so far out in the country, it was you had to walk a mile to get to a dirt road. You've heard of that? I had to walk a mile to get to the main road to catch the bus. And for some reason, I didn't want to go to school, and I was crying, and my sister was making fun of me, taunting me. And my mother, who's not very demonstrative, was not very demonstrative emotionally and, 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 and affectionately, I remember she put her arms around me, and she kind of hugged me, and she said, you got to go to school. And so I started out, and I went on, got on the bus. You know how it goes. Thirty minutes of school, and I forgot it all. That afternoon, as I got off the bus, I remember that I saw a mother coming up the road. And, and I didn't know what, you know. So I started walking. About 100 yards, we met. And I said, what are you doing? What's, what's this? She said, oh, I'm just out for a little walk, and... I thought I'd walk by, walk up this road here. I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now. What my mother was saying was this, Gerald, I just want you to know that I'll always be here for you. I love it when Jesus met with his disciples and he said, gentlemen, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send another comforter and He'll always be with you. And the word there means, if you can picture yourself walking down this road and you meet somebody in the road and that somebody turns to walk the rest of the way with you. That's what the word comforter means. He said, I want to send somebody who will go the rest of the way with you. Now eventually, listen to me, eventually, you can have television on your ha in your house and those figures moving about in the room and you can have music in the elevator, but eventually a personal comforter is essential because man is personal and the only sufficient comforter is our Lord Himself.
And so a reporter went up to the room to visit an old man. And he said, outside the gangs, you could hear gangs running around, writing graffiti on the walls, tearing up, tearing up mailboxes, harassing old people who went to the store. He said, behind was an old tenement building, and there was this gigantic dis- demolition ball just wrecking it, tearing it down, and a, the incessant staccato roar of a jackhammer. And he said, reporter looked at the old man and said, how do you stand to live in this? And he said, the old man nodded to a crucifix on the wall and said, he creates an inner circle of silence. Hadn't you heard? Hadn't you noticed? The reporter hadn't. I want to leave you this story as you leave, graduates, adults. It comes from a marvelous book written by a name, by a woman named Sabrina Vumbrand. That name, Vumbrand, probably rings a bell. Her husband, Richard, was an evangelical pastor in Romania, and they survived the Nazi prison camps. And after, the, after that, they were imprisoned by the communist. Sabrina wrote a book entitled The Pastor's Wife. And it chronicled the years that she and 3,000 women lived in this horrible prison camp called Canal. And one night, while she was lying in her cot, A woman by the name of Cornelia came and sat on her cot and said, I've got to tell you something that happened to me last night. She said, I dreamed, I I dreamed, and immediately I was in this large field full of beautiful flowers. She said, I could still smell the fragrance. She said, I could hear the sound of wasps and bees buzzing and a horde of, of butterflies were coming toward me, glistening with beautiful colors. I sensed my daughter was there. He said, then I saw this woman, beautiful woman, with gorgeous eyes, looking down into my heart, and she handed me a bouquet of lily of the valley. I can still smell the bouquet, she said. And then all of a sudden, I heard the sound of a man's voice in the middle of the field, gentle and stern and loving, And he was repeating some verses from Song of Solomon as flowers among the thorns, so my love among my daughters. And then I woke. And she said, I realized I was still in the prison camp. I could hear the weeping and the sighing and the snoring of other women around me. And the guards were still there. And when they rattled... When they rattled the cage the next morning at five and sent us to the quarries to work, she said, I went as one dancing in the fields for my beloved. She said, I can still see the woman and I can still smell her bouquet. I can still hear the voice of the man saying, so is my love among the daughters. And said, Sabrina Vrumbrand, are you listening? 
she looked with new eyes on the thousands of small kindnesses, beauties, signs, and wonders of his presence. And so the songwriter put it, I've been lots of places. I've, been, I've seen lots of faces. There have been times I felt so alone. But in my lonely hours, yes, in those precious lonely hours, Jesus, let me know that I'm his own. And through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon His Word. Now when life gets you in a bad lie, hunker down, concentrate, and understand He is with you always. The question this morning is this. What kind of relationship do you have with Jesus Christ? Mary Ann, would you begin, would y'all begin our invitation? What kind of relationship do you have with Jesus Christ? Are you listening? Look here. Do you have a kind of relationship that understands that He's nearer than breath, than the skin on this flesh and the flesh on these bones? that He cares about you? And have you such a relationship that in the pressure, pressures of life, you react as He reacts? The question is, what kind of relationship you have with Jesus Christ? I don't want you to go out this morning without coming to know Him as your personal Savior. I don't want you to leave without knowing that Jesus Christ is real in you. So there are three invitations. An invitation for you to come and give your heart and life to Christ. He died in order that He might be where you are. Would you come to receive Him? Would you come to recommit your life to Him? Come from the cold to the warmth. Come from rebellion to obedience. Maybe you need to join this church. While we stand, the choir just continues to hum. We invite you to come.